I have built some models based on stuff that we have learned in the software industry that would indicate it is entirely possible to double their revenues and quadruple their margins. Hello and welcome to another edition of the AEM Thinking Forward podcast, advancing the equipment manufacturing industry. I'm Dusty Weiss, AEM's professional nerd, traveling raconteur, and podcast host. And in this episode, how a little dose of Silicon Valley can modernize your business model, drive new revenue, and help you attract top technology talent. We'll be talking with Dr. Timothy Cho, the former CEO of Oracle On Demand, a Stanford lecturer on applied IoT technology, and the host of an upcoming AEM Business Models Workshop for Executives. And his contention? Manufacturers the world over are missing out on an entire class of untapped revenue from the products they sell. That ought to raise some eyebrows, but that's what we do here on the AEM Thinking Forward podcast. Each month, we explore a new subject area to help keep your business on the cutting edge of the equipment manufacturing industry. If you haven't yet, subscribe to our feed so you're updated every time we put out a new edition. Maybe share a link with your colleagues if you hear something useful, too. And if you enjoy these insights, you should really subscribe to our twice-weekly e-newsletter, The Industry Advisor. Some recent advisor headlines include the impact of China's tariffs on farm imports of corn and soy, a Senate panel rejects President Trump's cuts to transportation, and Stein Seed Farm invests $5 million in driverless tractors. Check out aem.org news for more on these and other stories. But right now, on to our featured interview. A lot of the time when we talk about new technology on construction and agricultural equipment, we're talking about new features that are being added to types of equipment that have been on sites and in fields for decades. But in a survey initiative with AEM, researchers from McKinsey and Company found that while customers might be interested in these new features, they're less interested in paying extra for them. One of the recommendations that resulted from that report is for manufacturers to tap into new sources of revenue in order to pay for those features and pad out their margins. That means getting your company into more of a Silicon Valley mindset when it comes to the products you offer, the talent you recruit, and even your corporate structure. And that is where our next guest comes in. Dr. Timothy Cho is the former president of Oracle On Demand. He lectures on cloud computing and IoT solutions at Stanford. And he's the author of several books on these topics, including Precision, Principles, Practices, and Solutions for the Internet of Things, and the upcoming Precision Construction. Dr. Tim Cho, thanks for joining us on the AEM Thinking Forward podcast. Thanks. Thanks for inviting me. So, for starters, it's worth noting that you're going to be hosting a workshop for AEM members on August 9th of this year in Chicago. They can sign up for free at aem.org think. And that workshop is called how service revenue can boost your bottom line. But when I asked you what you thought we should call it, you suggested how to double revenue and quadruple margins. Now, that's a bold statement. Our uh, legal team, uh, kind of their eyebrows shot up when we mentioned it, but explain that. <laughs> well, good. That, that served my purpose. People start to pay attention. No, I mean, the reason I said why not name it that is that I think at the end of the day, this decision 
by executives of companies that make, you know, construction or agriculture machinery to invest in software and software product, you know, I think has to be motivated by a revenue conversation, not a cost-cutting conversation. And I have built some models based on stuff that we have learned in the software industry that would indicate it is entirely possible to take a company that makes forklifts or combine harvesters and double their revenues and quadruple their margins because, one, uh, you have a large installed base, and if I can provide a service, and we'll come back and talk about what that might mean, but if I can provide a service to that installed base, well, I could monetize the entire, like all the you know machines I've sold over all these years, which is a large number. And my modeling was around the idea that I would charge you 1% of the price of the machine per year for that service. And why would it improve margins? Because I think most people who are in the machine making business know that their products are under margin pressure all the time. Service margins can be as high as 90%. And so it's not hard to believe that you couldn't quadruple your margins and double your revenues. So your business model is predicated on the case that as machines come to rely more heavily on built-in software, there are important concepts that manufacturers can adapt from the software industry. The foremost of these is the concept of service revenue. What is it, and what makes you say it's applicable beyond the realm of computer software? I start out this conversation with uh, you know, executives in this area by saying all machines are are headed to being more software-defined. Just a case in point of an area that people are aware of is automobiles. I mean, the Porsche Panamera uh, in 2016 shipped with 2 million lines of code. The 2017 shipped with 100 million lines of software. Uh, you know, modern combine harvesters have, you know, north of 6, 7 million lines of code in them. So I think as we evolve more and more to having software-defined machines, I said, well, maybe it would be useful for you to think about the business models that have, I'll call it, transformed my industry, the software industry, and how those might be applicable to, to your business. That That's the major point. And it's essentially approaching the concept of the service that you provide these machines from sort of a subscriber mindset, uh, sort of like Netflix. Well, just to be a little bit more precise, I take them through three fundamental business models which have dominated the software industry. The first being I sell you a product plus a disconnected service. So just to use Oracle as an example, you know, Oracle sells you a database or an ERP application and then sells you a service contract, which by the way, runs at about 2% of the purchase price per month for that service. Uh, in the year before they bought Sun, they were a $15 billion a year business, and $3 billion of that was selling you product, $12 billion was selling you service. So they were fundamentally operating in what I call a 2080 model, meaning 20% is product revenue, 80% is service revenue, and that service revenue was at 90%, 90 plus percent margins. Why? Because service is not break-fix. It's not, that's not what it is. Service is information which is personal and relevant to you, and let's say what that might be, well, that would be information about how to maintain or optimize the performance, the availability, the security of the product, right? Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And I, as the supplier of the product, in this case a database or an ERP application, I'm the natural aggregator of all of this knowledge about how to maintain or optimize the performance, availability, or security of my product. And so I could monetize that, share that with you, and they do. And that Model 1 has been the dominant model of traditional software companies, SAP, Oracle, Microsoft, etc. Model 2 just suggested that, well, boy, if I could connect to your machine, and we started doing this in my world, you know, 10, 15 years ago, I can make my information more personal and more relevant because I know more about just exactly what the product is, right? That your database is running on a Sun server with NetApp filers or whatever. I can assist you in managing the performance, availability, or security of the product, right? I can tell you what to do because I already I know so much more about what your product looks like. And that is model two, which, you know, at Oracle we actually in four years built an incremental three hundred million dollar year business just doing that. And, you know, many other companies have, have ultimately built that model. And then model three was, well, if I can tell you what to do, then it's obvious that the next step is I can do it for you. And the thing that people today refer to as software as a service, that's indeed what it is. It's the company that makes the product, whether that's you know Salesforce or NetSuite or Workday or whatever, they also manage, rather than telling you how to manage the software, they do it for you. They manage the performance, the availability, and security of the product. And so you're essentially paying not for the product itself, but you're paying for hours of operational service from that product. Yes. In fact, we, we did some math a long time ago that said that if you bought the product and managed it yourself, you would spend four times the purchase price per year to manage the product. And clearly, the guys that do it for you, whether that's Salesforce or SuccessFactors or whatever, they don't charge you near that amount of money, right? <laughs> right. So... Where do we see examples of these business models playing out in the world of industrial machines? So model one, remember I said, is deliver a product and deliver a, what I call a disconnected service, meaning I don't have to connect to your machines. Most people don't realize this, but General Electric, uh, if you look at their 2016 financials, they did $110 billion worth of revenue. $55 billion of that was selling you a product, meaning a jet engine, an MRI scanner, locomotive, those things, right? And $55 billion of it was service contracts on those machines. And because they sell multi-year contracts, they also reported their backlog, which was north of $250 billion. So if you think about it, if I could take that business and go from 50-50 to 20-80 and improve my margins of my service revenue to 90%, I mean, it it would be hugely transformative to the General Electric Corporation. So they already, I will tell you, most companies have zero service revenue. I've seen this over and over again, right? But they clearly have have taken that step long ago to build a service business in Model 1, meaning I don't have to connect to it. Let me give you an example from Model 2. So there's a company out there called New York Airbrake. New York Airbrake built an application 
which connects to locomotives. It connects to them, it collects data from it, it learns on that data, and then it provides assistance to the train operator to tell them when to speed up and slow down to save fuel costs. And Norfolk Southern actually uses them, saves $6 million a year in fuel costs in a product plus connected service uh, deployment. And then I go, okay, again, same idea. If I could tell you what to do, well, what's the next step? Well, I might as well do it for you, right? And so there's going to be an automated train running from the north of uh, Australia down to Perth, bringing iron ore in in a totally automated way, meaning delivering a train as a service, which brings us to model three, which is I'm delivering the product as a service. It's no longer, you know, the product and then the service. It's the two of them are together. And I ask people, now I'll go over to the consumer world. I go, well, if I wanted to deliver a car as a service, what would the business model be? Right? What would I charge people? How would I charge them for the car as a service? And you go, well, it's fairly obvious. You charge them per ride, right? That makes perfect sense. And I go, well, there are eight companies out there that do this, right? They're called Uber and Lyft, and if you're in China, DD, right? They provide you a car as a service on a per-ride basis. And then I ask people, do they ever think about what is the most expensive thing in that ride? And the answer is... Absolutely, the driver. It's the driver. It's the human. So why is automation interesting? I mean, other than technologically, it's kind of a cool problem. It's transformative from an economic point of view, because if I could remove the driver out of the equation, there is no reason to own a car. I mean, the cost structures would be actually better to deliver a car as a service. And so that's why, if you look at the automotive industry, the massive turmoil that's going on, you know, Ford replacing CEOs, right, Uh, investments here and there in automated, right, driving, that's why an industry which... You know, you could say 10 years ago, everybody thought, you know, game, set, and match. I mean, we're pretty much done. Is headed to being completely transformed. In fact, there's an entire argument that once you hit automated car, at that point in time, the person who's figured out how to do that will just go to a major manufacturer and say, here, build a car to my spec. Now, I don't need for General Motors, Volkswagen, Toyota, any of those people, right? I mean, this has already, by the way, happened in the computer hardware business. The guys providing computer hardware as a service, meaning Amazon, you know, Google, Microsoft, they don't buy the those boxes, those servers, right, from the major manufacturers anymore. They know exactly the specifications that are required, and they just go to the guys that make them, manufacture them, and then they put them in their in their data centers, totally bypassing. So that's why I tell people, you know, in your industry, there is no reason, whether you're in construction or agriculture, building machines, that this isn't going to happen as it is happening in the automobile industry. And a lot of our AEM members, they've been building their products, some of them for more than 100 years. A lot of these products last for decades out in the fields where they work. Is that why we've seen this sector move a little more slowly when it comes to adopting this technology? No. I think the challenge has been, I go back to the challenge has been business model. Nobody has come in and explained why it is. And if I'm the CEO of a forklift company or whatever, and my smart, you know, 
guys show up in my office and go, well, we can connect this stuff and collect data and use machine learning. I, I go, well, that's really fun. Sounds like you guys are having fun. But why are we going to make any money doing this? And in, until people can answer that question, I think the level of investment in this will be relatively flat, right? Because why would I do it? And I think until you fundamentally understand that services information, information about what, information about how to maintain or optimize the performance, availability, or security of the product, you will not, the executive team will not make the investments in this. I'm glad that you brought that up. And we're talking with Dr. Tim Cho, former CEO of Oracle On Demand and a Stanford lecturer on IoT and cloud computing solutions. Because when I talk to the engineers and the innovation champions who work with this kind of technology at uh, various companies, one of the frustrations that I hear regularly is that they don't have the organizational leverage to really advocate for this kind of transformative corporate change. So what organizational changes would you say are necessary for a company to thrive in this space? Oh, well, first of all, it's going to require organizational change. I mean, I... We've been discussing business model, touched a little bit on technology, but at the end of the day, if we don't change organizations, none of this is going to happen. Fundamentally, today, most of the way these businesses are organized for, I like to call it horsepower and torque, right? So I'm going to build a bigger engine, right? Maybe a more efficient engine, more torque in my engine. My VP of engineering is all geared up to go do that. My salespeople are all geared up to sell that, right? Mm-hmm. And now you walk in and say, no, there's this thing called service. And by the way, service isn't break fix. I, I was talking not in the ag, ag or construction industry to one of a large a company that makes semiconductor manufacturing equipment. And I, I said, well, how many machines do you have in the field? He goes, oh, probably 20 or 30,000. I thought, well, that's interesting. He doesn't know exactly one because obviously none of these machines are connected because if they were connected, he would have picked up his phone and gone 21,353, right? (laughs) (laughs) So then I got to the second question. I said, how much service revenue do you have? And he goes, zero. I go, you're kidding me, zero. He goes, nobody wants to to buy service. I go, well, guess what? My, My guess is what you tell them service is, is break fix. As soon as you tell them it's break-fix, they're looking at you going, I just paid a quarter million dollars for a machine. Why should I pay you for break-fix? This digital service product, which is the way I'm telling people they've got to think about this, whether in the disconnected, connected, or ultimately product as a service space, is a different product. It is not the horsepower and torque product. And it is the product which is delivering me information about how to maintain or optimize the performance, availability, or security of my fill-in-the-blank, Rogate or Combine Harvester, Forklift, Scissor Lift, etc. And I've been recommending to the executive teams I talked to, I said, look, I think what you ought to do is create a chief services officer that sits at executive staff level, right, doesn't sit buried under... IT or buried under somewhere else, got to sit at the table, and he or she will have a VP of digital service product R&D, research and development, I need to build these products, and this person will have a VP of digital service product sales and marketing, because the guy who's selling horsepower and torque, believe me, they, they don't know how to sell, they don't know how to talk about how to 
maintain or optimize the performance, availability, or security of the product. So organizationally, uh, I think you're going to end up with another product line. That product line needs to sit at the same level as the rest of your company, and that is the beginning. Ultimately, as you evolve, frankly, to product as a service, these things all they all meet together. There's no difference between a service and the product. They, they're integrated. But in the transformation, as many of your members are going to be in, I go, here, build a digital service product organization, right? Fund it. You're going to have to choose to fund it at some level. And it has its own sales and marketing. So they'll go off and sell it, build it, and from a revenue perspective, lead the company forward. And essentially what that accomplishes, perhaps most importantly, is giving the people who are advocates for this technology and this business model uh, an equal amount of clout with everybody else in the executive boardroom and uh, really being able to engage in that tug of war on sort of a level playing field with everybody else in the boardroom. But inherent in the notion that the equipment industry is going to rely more heavily on software than are the changes in the broader workforce that that's going to require as well. How radically are our member companies going to have to change the makeup of their workforce in order to keep up? Well, you know. <laughs> a lot is what I'm hearing. To, they're they're going to have to they're going to have to add a lot more horsepower. But just to make a point of it, I don't think you know, this is a game played not by, you know, suddenly putting, you know, 20% of your revenue over into this new digital service product organization. I wouldn't even say that's not what you need to do. You need to get started, and you need to get started on the on the digital service product development side, and you need to get started on the digital service product sales and marketing side. On the product side, it's going to require you to have people who understand, you know, number one, this whole conversation about the software content of a, you know, rogator of any machine, so the software on the thing itself is what I like to talk about, or at the edge, depending on how you want to think about this, number one. Number two, you're going to have to have people who think about networks, right? Understand networking because you're going to have to connect these machines. You're going to have to have software people that understand collection architectures, meaning how do I collect data, not only from, quote, OT systems, operational systems, sensor data, but also IT systems, meaning your service management systems, your call tracking systems, your warranty systems. Fourth, you're going to need people who understand and th can think about how to learn and analyze from this kind of data that ultimately will plug into a new service product, right, that you will build. So you're going to need a different, you know, it's, it's not the guys who know how to build better horsepower and torque. You're any software guys, right, who have domain experience. So maybe this is going to happen because you're going to take people who have domain experience and educate them more on software. It may mean that you're going to go hire software people and educate them on your domain, but you're going to need to do that. So my counsel, start with small teams, get in and start perfecting this and then put more and more and more resource into it. Now, for an industry that has traditionally focused, as you point out, on horsepower and torque, 
sometimes going out and, and finding people who are expert in this area and, and software experts uh, can be a, a little bit of a, a long long reach. Uh, you're a guy that traces his professional roots to the golden days of Silicon Valley, and in a lot of ways, our companies are going to need to inject a little bit of Silicon Valley into their talent pool in order to take advantage of this business model. So for an industry that's been around more than a century and has its roots in the Midwest, what does Silicon Valley look like? Well, I, I like to think that Silicon Valley still in the golden days, but <laughs> so anyway... <laughs> I don't. I, I often, you know, people, because uh, I've been around this conversation many different ways about creating Silicon Valley's other places in the world, and I, I kind of counsel, you know, Silicon Valley, I could describe as a longer conversation. I could describe a lot of reasons why it exists that are very hard to replicate. So I don't know that this is a replication uh, objective. What I do think is that, first of all, there's plenty, I mean, in the Midwest, I went to University of Illinois, got my PhD there, so there's plenty of high-quality universities, you know, Wisconsin, Northwestern, Illinois, Purdue, Michigan, sitting in the Midwest, number one. Number two, right, some of those kids don't want to move to California. Can I give them an environment and a mission and a, a vision that is compelling, interesting, engaging, all these sorts of words in the construction and ag business? I think the answer to that is yes. I've seen, I'm, I'm chairman of the Alchemist Accelerator focused on the industrial IoT. I've, I, we've had young companies come in, you know, out of Chicago. Their dad uh, owns a farm. I mean, surprise, surprise, right? Mm -hmm. um, so I think it's the cultivation of reaching out uh, leadership back to my chief services officer and my VP of R&D and my VP of sales and marketing. If I can get some good guys in those slots and use those guys to create an environment, is the phrase I would use, that is compelling, there's plenty of high-quality people sitting in the Midwest. You know, I'm glad that you bring that up because I very proudly went to the University of Wisconsin myself and uh, hung around and still hang around with a number of programmers and engineers there. And a lot of them, when they graduated, uh, seemed to have this notion that the only path forward for them was to move out to Silicon Valley. And that was disheartening to them in a way. A lot of them moved out there because, you know, we Midwesterners, we have strong roots uh, back here in the Midwest. And so a lot of them, they moved out there for five, six, seven years and then eventually found their way back to the Midwest. But I, I feel like had there been a, a path forward presented to them where they could still achieve professionally and yet stay closer to home and their families and everything that they like about the Midwest, the Green Bay Packers, um, it would have been a lot easier for them to uh, sort of live out their vision. And I think part of that goes back to, there are some dated stereotypes that dog the agriculture and construction equipment industry um, that make it hard for them to attract this new generation of workers. What is it that this generation of software experts and programmers are looking for in a job, and how do equipment manufacturers go about providing that to them? Well, since I'm not in the generation... <laughs> I will describe it kind of from a different You certainly, you work with them, though, on a regular basis, lecturing at Stanford. Yeah, you know, I, I like to say I get to hang out with the kids. I will tell you, I mean, yes, there's all the stuff that people are probably aware of, whether that's, I mean, I'm just, actually, I'm here for a board meeting at Blackbaud. We just uh, moved into a new building in Charleston, and on the way up, 
you know, there's the requisite uh, Keurig coffee makers and, you know, ping pong tables and all that sort of stuff, right, and uh, the, the, the accoutrements. So, yes, okay, all that stuff, which is, you know, really easy to replicate, if you will, open seating. So I think really what it is is, you know, a, a compelling thing to go work on, you know, something interesting, something compelling, something I can learn, right? Because, I mean, you know, I'll say the good kids want to learn more. So, and they know, I mean, I'll say they know that while I might graduate with a degree in computer science from Wisconsin, uh, I've never seen a scissor lift, right? I've never seen a rogator. I, you know, yeah, I'm aware of these things, but I've never even seen them. So what are the challenges in the agriculture industry? What are the challenges in the construction industry? And it's not without, I mean, you know, there are guys out there building uh, robots for the construction industry. I mean, it's not like, you know, smart kids haven't figured this out, that these are big-ass industries, right, which have, you know, huge opportunities to be transformed on a global basis. It, 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 it is. I just think what's happened, to your point, is if I'm in one of these large 100-year-old companies without serious leadership, rethinking, which hopefully the workshops that we're headed to doing, we have some of those leaders in the room for them to start to realize it's got to be them, that they start to make this change, they start to talk about this, they start to, you know, bring the people in, and it doesn't take a hundred people, it takes the right ten people, right, and care and feed for that, pay attention to it, right, that's where it has to go, and I think as long as people think which many people do, that, you know, what is software? Oh, it's those guys in IT. Oh, what do they do? Oh, they keep the email system running. Or, you know, get me my laptop. You know, as long as that's how they think about software, well then, you know, no. I, 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 I'm not going to go to work there. If on the other hand, right, I am building the next generation software-defined machines in a connected network, with machine learning and AI technologies on top of it to be able to predict failure or to improve the performance of these machines, right? Electrification is clearly something that's going to happen in this industry as it's happened over in automotive. So what's the next generation of non-diesel machines? I mean, there's all this stuff is sitting in there, and there are examples already in, in young companies that are doing this. I think it's the old guys that got to get on the ball and start you know, paying attention, investing, strategically thinking about it, caring. I mean, if you only care about horsepower and torque, then that's what you're going to talk about all day and all night. And that's what you're going to get. So it's all about positioning. And and you and I were discussing the other month, actually, about AEM's ongoing research into what equipment customers expect from the new technology to sort of shift back to your business model here. You cautioned me with the apocryphal saying that if Henry Ford had fixated on just what his customers wanted, he'd have built a faster horse. So how then should equipment manufacturers go about marketing this new technology to their customers? What pitfalls do they need to avoid and what obstacles do they face in adopting this business model? I do think, and I'll give you another example which is fairly well known, is you know the guys at BlackBerry went out and did a survey of their customers about whether or not they wanted a touchscreen telephone, <laughs> and they overwhelmingly said no. <laughs> yeah, so this challenge of I know it's good to talk to customers, but 
I think that what you, what I counsel people is it's not about talking to customers. The questions that you ask them. So if you ask them questions like, would you want a touch screen? Tell, okay, fine. But what, what are your problems? What are you trying to do? How are you trying to do them? I need to think about that. I need to understand that. And then I think, you know, this gets into leadership, right? You, you have to say, I've listened to a lot of people. I've heard their challenges, right? I know where technology is going, right? We're going to put a stake out here. This is what we think is the future of track loaders, or this is what we think the future of, you know, combine harvesters are, right? And I think it, it really starts with that, is I've got to have that, because if I don't have that, then what the hell am I building, right? And I think that that, that really is, quote-unquote, job one. By the way, you know, talk about obstacles. Your number one obstacle in doing this, you know, it's going to be your internal people. It's going to be your sales people who are going to go, I can't sell that. People don't buy service. You know, well, what's the messaging for this, boss? I, I, I think across the board, if you cannot sell what it is you're trying to do, if you don't solve that problem, you're going to be dead on arrival. The reason why I understand all this stuff is we face all the same problems in putting a product called an ERP application into this model. This, all these things I'm telling you are not because it's some abstract conversation. I've seen it firsthand, right? In an industry which is, quote, by definition, leading edge. So you can imagine why I appreciate the challenges that might be true at, a, at companies that are part of AEM, who this has not been, right, part of the way they're, they're built. And hence, what I hope we accomplish in the workshop, which is we got to get the CEOs have got to make some decisions, have got to think about this stuff. Well, and ultimately, I think that's the real value that we have in this workshop is that you have been there and done that. So bringing the conversation back full circle, you presented this executive level workshop on everything that companies need to know about service oriented business models. Uh, you presented that last fall to AEM's Futures Council, and they found such value in what you had to say that they recommended that we offer this workshop to our most senior AEM board members and the executives from any member company that's interested. That's taking place August 9th in Chicago. It's free for AEM members to attend. And we just dipped our toes in the water on this topic today, but what should participants in this workshop expect in August? What I'm going to try to do is, obviously, to some extent, we touched on some of these as we were talking, but I, I, my plan is, one, to go a little bit deeper, um, both in helping them understand what these business models are, as well as how one would go about implementing them from an R&D perspective. How would one go about implementing this from a sales and marketing? Remember I said, you're going to have to build it and you're going to have to sell and market it. And then we touched on it. What are the organizational changes that are going to be required in order to pull this off? What are the budgeting changes that are going to be required in order to pull this off? And what are the roadblocks that you're going to encounter along the way? So hopefully they walk out of this with a deeper understanding. You know, we built a workbook so that they can use it to kind of think about, think with, uh, a deeper understanding of what is possible and a path to go forward um, if they make the choice that this is that they do want to indeed double their revenues and quadruple their margins. There go our lawyers' eyebrows again. I get to say it, right? <laughs> <laughs> you sure do. 
Um, so once again, that workshop is August 9th in Chicago. Visit aem.org slash think for more details and to reserve your spot. There will be business models, successful use cases. There will be opportunities to talk with Dr. Cho one-on-one at a luncheon afterwards. There will be everything that you need to know to transform your business and tap into service revenue from IoT technology in this executive-level workshop. But you've got to reserve your spot ahead of time. Visit aem.org slash think for more details and sign up for this free AEM members only workshop. And I will look forward to seeing you again, Dr. Cho. It's always a pleasure catching up with you. And thanks for joining us here on the AEM Thinking Forward podcast. Well, thanks for inviting me and look forward to meeting some of the people uh, at the event in Chicago. So that's just a preview of what Tim has on tap for his workshop on August 9th in Chicago. And if you think this business model is something that can benefit your company, registration is live and you can sign up for it now or sign someone from your executive team up and send them. AEM.org slash think is the place to go to do that. I'll tell you, I sat through Tim's workshop when it was piloted by the AEM Futures Council last fall, and there is a whole lot more to it than what we discussed here today. And that's not the only big thing that AEM has coming up in August either. On August 23rd, our Thinking Forward series of events is headed to one of my favorite cities, San Francisco. We'll be talking about artificial intelligence and generative design at Autodesk's Pier 9 workshop. There will be a tour. We'll also hear from David Knight, the founder and CEO of the IoT-generated data marketplace Turbine. But you've got to register ahead of time, and space is limited. So head over to aem.org think to learn more about those events and sign up as well. Also, a great way to stay on top of industry trends is to follow AEM on LinkedIn. Just search up the Association of Equipment Manufacturers to see the news and events that we put out on LinkedIn. And before we call this one a wrap, if you enjoyed our podcast today, do me a favor. Open up your podcasting app and subscribe to our updates. That way, if you're kind of forgetful like me, your phone will still automatically download our monthly episodes and have them ready to listen whenever you're in a car or on a flight or out for a run. And if you've got something to say to me direct, shoot me an email. Podcast at AEM.org will get you into my inbox. The AEM Thinking Forward podcast is brought to you by the Association of Equipment Manufacturers. Little Glass Men does the music. And for AEM, thanks for listening. I'm Dusty Weiss.